Hey, it's been a while. Remember this about Ghislaine Maxwell? She said it at the tea party. I am broke. She said it more than once. And I just didn't really read the signs that she was sitting in rather a pretty apartment that you can't have if you're broke. Ghislaine Maxwell said she was strapped for cash. But according to Christina Oxenberg, who socialized with her in New York, Ghislaine's lifestyle completely contradicted that. Now we might have some insight into why the Maxwells sometimes said they were broke, but appeared to be the opposite. A few months ago, I learned that Kevin and Ian Maxwell had popped up in a trove of documents that detailed the financial shenanigans of a trust company in a Jersey tax haven. Could these documents finally answer our questions about the millions of pounds that have gone missing under the Maxwells? I'm Tara Palmieri, and this is Power, the Maxwells. You're about to hear a conversation between myself and the journalist James Hurley. I called him up at his office at The Times in London, where he writes about private companies and entrepreneurs. James has been working with the people who made the discovery of Maxwell's finances, and he's going to explain exactly what happened. So... This whole story starts with a bunch of dusty boxes found by a woman called Tanya in 2012. Can you tell me a little bit about Tanya Dickstock, who she was and who her father John Dick was? Tanya Dickstock is an American heiress and the son of a gentleman called uh, John Dick, who's quite a well-known businessman who's on the board of the global media conglomerate Liberty Media. Um, Now, Tanya is married to a chap called Darren, and it was during the planning for their wedding that they discovered 350,000 files in more than 330 boxes in a Jersey squash court. So Tanya finds a huge number of confidential documents on the grounds of her family home. Can you tell me more about the company those documents are related to? So the documents contain a trust company called La Hoog. So well, what is La Hoog? La Hoog is a Jersey-based business and it was very shadowy, but what these documents show is it ostensibly marketed services such as tax avoidance to wealthy clients. So for one of the examples that I drew on in my reporting was a um, marketing document that was sent in back in 2000 and this was sent out to clients and it presented a summary of methods available to ensure the movement of assets offshore and the the secrecy around the organisation is, I think, quite well exemplified by this because there's a note attached to it from a chap called Richard Wigley, who was the managing director of La Hoog, that warns the client, clients, I have a concern that any of these papers should fall into the wrong hands, so please guard them carefully. Okay, so basically they were uh, a way to take your money offshore to hide it, right? To put it very simply, yeah. Right. So just for our listeners in the United States who might not know, Jersey is an island, right, off of the coast of the UK. And it's sort of a, it's sort of become a bit of a tax haven. Uh, that, that's exactly right. So they come under the auspices of the of the British state, but they have lots of autonomy, and that includes uh, allowing them to set their own tax rates and things like that. In Jersey, there isn't anywhere near the level of disclosure that that, that you would get from listing a company in on mainland UK, for example. So, it's, uh, and obviously the tax rates are, it's are lower, so that, that that attracts a certain type of business. It's fair to say. How far back in time do these documents? go to? Well, that's a good question. So as I understand it, La Hoog uh, traces its history right back to the 1980s. So there's given there's millions of pages here, it, it's been a job for 
Darren and Tanya and 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 their team to sort of trawl through these documents. And they, they found all sorts of interesting transactions that go back to the early noughties, but also back into the 90s and, and, and maybe even beyond. Now, Tanya ended up leaking these files because, as I understand it, she has some skin in the game. Her father recently told her that the money in her trust has suddenly disappeared. Can you tell me about her allegations and how they relate to Lahogue? At the heart of all this is uh, is is a is a family dispute actually, and it's a, a father versus daughter dispute. So. Basically, Tanya and her husband, Darren, claim that Lahoog was effectively a, a, a giant Ponzi scheme, really, or a Ponzi-like scheme would probably be the best way of putting it, that, that was effectively stealing from its own wealthy clients. Um, uh, and then when they came calling asking for their money back, it was Tanya's trust that was stolen from in order to return the money. Right. What was her father's role at Lahoog? He claims that he has not nor ever has been its ultimate ultimate beneficial owner. But that said, there are documents including a 1992 court ruling in the United States, as well as internal Lahoog correspondence that, that show that Lahoog was, was controlled by John Dick. Right. And the documents were found ultimately in his home, on his property, in his squash court, right? Exactly. So then, again, you come back to this situation of... It, how didn't he? How, if he didn't know what was going on at Lahoog, how could that have happened? Given his involvement seems to be all over the documents. So Tanya goes through these files, and the contents of them are obviously quite damning for Lahoog. Am I saying it right, Lahoog or Lahoog? I, I pronounce it Lahoog. Lahoog. Okay. It could be a tomato, tomato thing there. Yeah, tomato, tomato, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You mentioned a document that listed ways in which LaHoog was apparently willing to assist in tax evasion. Can you tell me in a bit more detail some of the methods? So there's tax avoidance, probably alleged tax evasion as well. And obviously, you know, the distinction being tax avoidance, if you stay within the rules, is legal and tax evasion is definitely illegal. But but that, that that's a blurry line. Um, and I think it's fair to say it's been accused of probably going across that line. In 2016, Wiggly, who's one of the operators of Lahoog, as, as I've said, was, was found by a Denver court to have forged and backdated dozens of loan documents, which amounted to the creation of millions of dollars of, of, of fake debt. Um, and you can use fake debt to, to do a couple of things. One, you might use it to write off against tax to reduce your tax bill. Um, you might use it to throw creditors off the trail as well, because if you can pretend you've got debts over here that make you look like you're close to insolvency or indeed insolvent, then genuine creditors who've got real money that needs to be repaid uh, might get thrown off the scent and think, well, I'll, I'll give up chasing you because it looks like you haven't got any money to, 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 to repay me. In another example, uh, former trustees admitted in a US court that Lahoog had fabricated paper trails for itself and clients. And the Toronto Star has alleged that Lahoog helped a local businessman in Canada evade a large tax bill by, by engineering one of these fake bankruptcies that, that I've described, although it's important to say that the, um, the businessman's lawyer has, has denied this. Okay, so just to summarise what you're saying, they created fake old documents to make it look like other people were chasing them for money so that the people who are actually chasing them for money, they can say to them, listen, we're in debt to other people, we're bankrupt, we can't pay you back. 
that's exactly what's uh, what's alleged and you know f- from documents that that I've seen I, I do think there are there are very very serious questions to be asked about the legitimacy of, of some of these debts that that these that these documents purport to show because it's some of the evidence that backs that up is the the documents seem to show that that some of they're being sort of made up after the fact so for example or for argument's sake you might have a document purporting to show some sort of debt that was let's say created in the year 2000 and you can see them putting all this together um for example in the year 2004 so you know it's kind of like a bit of theater really it's a stage show to pretend something exists when when it doesn't got it so they went back and they made documents that were in 2004 that were dated in 2000 to show that the debt existed from way before they owed money to other it, ex- exactly that and then you know if you can then create a public show about this maybe by entering it into a, a court proceeding or getting some public relations around it maybe you have a newspaper article about being pursued by this this creditor then maybe you can use that to, to throw your genuine creditors off the scent and maybe they drop some of your debts. So there are so many files, 350,000 files, and Tanya and Darren are still going through them. But a few months ago, some familiar names cropped up, Ian and Kevin Maxwell. As we know from earlier in the series, after Robert Maxwell died, Kevin declared bankruptcy. But he avoided going bust in 2004 by agreeing to shell out a million dollars to a Gibraltar-based company and similar amounts of money to other companies. So I'm going to do my best to break this down. And I think it's fair to say that um, there are some question marks remaining as to what exactly was going on here. But it's very, very odd. As you say, in the 90s, Kevin had already been bankrupt. Britain's biggest bankrupt, £400 million. In August 2004, according to uh, newspaper reports, he was close to going bust personally again. And he narrowly avoids it by apparently agreeing to pay a £1 million debt to a business called Global Investment. Now, according to contemporary newspaper reports, this thing, Global Investments, was based in Gibraltar. Now, this starts popping up in these Lahoug documents, so I get intrigued. Um, so I dropped a chap called Nicholas Pias, who's the registry manager in Gibraltar's version of Company's House, a line to ask him if they had any record of a business in Gibraltar called Global Investments. And he told me that no, they had no such business called Global Investments. So what is actually going on here? Now, in the Lahoug documents, we find something which looks very, very similar to this, but it isn't called Global Investments. That's the, that's the slightly odd thing. It's called Global Ventures. Um, but the timings other than that all seem to fit. Now, the transaction itself is very strange, and it basically sees Global, which is a Jersey entity, agreeing to pay Canon nominees, another Jersey business, £2 million, with Kevin and Ian providing personal guarantees. Now, the documents come with attached minutes that appear to show that they were created in July 2004 at the earliest, but they purport to relate to a debt or a transaction that took place in 2000. So obviously, you're starting to get into territory here where you have to ask what what the hell is going on. Um, I think what what these documents potentially show um, is basically the creation of, of... Debts on paper that then can be used at a, uh, at a later date, for example, in a court hearing or something, to to perhaps show a credit chasing you for debt and you paying it off. So he's they're creating the perception that creditors are hounding them for money, right? So that the other creditors think 
well, they have other debts to repay, so that's why we're not being repaid. But really, the people who are hounding them for money are their own companies that they set up in other places. That is certainly what seems to be happening, or at least there are questions to be asked. But this isn't the only the only evidence of, of this kind of transaction involving the Maxwells. Because there was also another another document that really jumped out of me was an invoice to LaHoog from a law firm, which was telling LaHoog basically to collect from the Maxwells the legal costs of writing a personal loan to Kevin and his wife, um, demanding the repayment and then dropping the recovery action. Um, so I, I rang up a, an insolvency expert contact of mine to have a look through these documents. And his answer was was effectively that it would be very, very, very unusual, almost unheard of really in, in, in this kind of example, for a borrower to be asked to pay the legal costs of recovery action, unless there was a court order to that effect, which there's no evidence of that here. And indeed, I did ask the Maxwells if that was what was going on, you know, to put it very simply, were you actually chasing yourself for money here. Um, and their answer was that they can't actually remember, I think the exact phrase they used was they didn't have any unaided recollection of uh, dealing with LaHoog. Unaided recollection is an unusual phrase, I thought. There's a perception that they're being hounded for money. And at the same time, there's a lot of money that their father owes to the Muir Group pensioners, right? Well, I guess it's important to say that um, both Kevin and Ian were accused of fraud in the case of the um, the Mirror Group scheme, but they were, along with their associate Larry Trachtenberg, who was also, by the way, named in a lot of these LaHoop documents, they, they were acquitted of that, although there was a, um, a government investigation in the early part of this century which said Kevin bore heavy responsibility for the Maxwell Group's failure. So there's certainly a, a black mark there, but it's, it's important to say there hasn't been a finding of, of fraud against him. But if you cast your mind back to the 90s, £440 million missing. There was a £100 million government payout, £276 million out-of-course settlement with city institutions. There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of missing money. Kevin was bankrupt, so ostensibly, as far as we know, there was no money anywhere. Although I think their involvement with LaHoog does, you do have to ask, was there actually some money that we didn't know about and that Kevin's creditors didn't know about? Does that mean that some of the money that was stolen from the Mirror Group pensioners was moved around to avoid repaying them? Now, to be clear, I haven't seen evidence of that, mm -hmm. but if I was you know, involved directly in that case, I would want to go through these documents and see how far back the Maxwell's involvement with LaHoog goes. Maybe was even Robert involved, given LaHoog was, was around in the 1980s. Was this one of the vehicles that money was transferred offshore via? I think that's something that, that should be looked at very, very carefully. Then Kevin tried to make a comeback with a company called Telemond. What happened there? This is after Kevin has been released from personal bankruptcy after having been Britain's biggest bankrupt. So Telemond was a sort of telecoms trading firm, effectively. And it was supposed to be Kevin's big, big comeback, but it only lasted a few years. This is still something that's being looked at, but I think it's fair to say that there are transactions involving Telemond that are at least questionable that come up in the LaHoog documents. Where was the money going? Was this all above board? And, and that's something that I'm looking into at the moment. So these documents involved Malcolm Grumbridge, but they also involved Robert Maxwell's financier who ran multiple businesses for Maxwell. How are they tied into Maxwell's dealings with LaHoog? So Malcolm Grumbridge is a very interesting chap. He was the Maxwell family lawyer and indeed family friend for, for many, many years, decades. Now, 
So December 2020, he entered into an agreement with um, British legal regulators to basically leave the profession after admitting reckless conduct with failures, including breaches of anti-money laundering, breaches of terrorist financing rules, all all sorts of failures as as a solicitor. Now, Malcolm Grumbridge's fingerprints are all over the Telemann documents. He's the guy who seems to have been basically acting on behalf of both Kevin and Ian with regards to LaHoog. So considering that this was Robert Maxwell's financier and he was involved in the leak from LaHoog, does that mean that Robert Maxwell could have possibly used LaHoog as well? So I've certainly been wondering if Robert was a client of LaHoog. It's important to say his name hasn't been found anywhere in the documents yet that I know of, Um, but more documents are being discovered all, all the time, and we need to have, see how far back the Maxwell's family links with with Lahook go back. I think the mind-boggling thing for me is that nothing has really happened since the leak. Why hasn't anyone acted? Why hasn't the Isle of Jersey acted? I'm just a journalist, but what I think the documents show would at least be worthy of investigation. I, I do think it's a, at least a little bit surprising, to, uh, to, to put it politely, that there doesn't seem to have been any really serious regulatory action. Um, and, and then you, you just start to wonder, why not? Is this a case of, of conflicts of interest in, in Jersey? Is it just too awkward, um, given the nature of, of, of some of the stuff that goes on in these offshore territories to lift the lid on something like this. So that's the story of how these documents were found and what the Maxwells may have been doing with LaHook. I called up David Leal Bennett, who you'll remember from earlier episodes to see what he thinks about the new allegations. Just to do a quick summary, we found out about a company called LaHook. They market services like tax avoidance to their wealthy clients. And this document that was leaked revealed all of these tricks. Were you surprised to read that Kevin Maxwell and his brother Ian were named in this leak? I was not surprised at all. And when I read the article, particularly involved with uh, Larry Trachtenberg, that for me reinforced the fact that there was something, should we say, less than kosher uh, with regard to those dealings. Did you or other people ever suspect that the Maxwells might be hiding money during the bankruptcy? Let me put it this way. With the Maxwell group, and I use that as the sort of the big picture, there were, I think, probably four areas. There was the public companies, MCC, which had to be dealt with officially correctly in accordance with stock exchange rules. And latterly, we had Mirror Group newspapers. There was the private side, which was just the private side owned by Robert Maxwell and um, whomsoever on the, of the family. And then there was what we called the unknown trust issues, where nobody, highly secretive issues, with companies in Liechtenstein, companies in Gibraltar, probably the Channel Islands, of which we knew very, very little and had very little dealings with. Does this knowledge of LaHoog clear up any of your questions about the Maxwells and their financial dealings? I I don't think it does, really. I don't think it does. I mean, I think after the trial, after the fact that these pensioners had lost a lot of money, I mean, I think he robbed them of about half a billion. It was a phenomenal amount of money. Nothing really surprised me. Does it make you angry that so many people were hurt by them? And their financial dealings. I think I think you wouldn't have a heart if you didn't feel for the people. 
after he had died and the companies went into receivership, Maxwell Communication Corporation had to pay, uh, were due to pay the salaries. Now, bearing in mind there was hardly any money around, but it was agreed by the banks that those salaries would be paid. I sent a letter confirming that NatWest would be paying the salaries of all the people. What I didn't realise was that on that letter I had my personal telephone number, and what I hadn't realised was that the finance director had copied that to, I guess, pretty much all the staff who wanted to know whether they were going to pay before Christmas. I had come home on Christmas Eve early, as one often does, um, and I had a telephone call. And the telephone call was for a lady crying in a telephone box saying, where's my money? And I said, well, I'm sorry, I don't know where you got my number from, but as far as I'm aware, everything's been paid. And she said, I haven't got it. And she was in tears asking me whether or not, you know, how could she buy presents for her kids on Christmas Eve, which she hadn't got any money. And I couldn't, I was totally helpless. Oh, that's, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. It, 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 it wells me up every time I talk about it because even now um, it hurts you know how does she get on yeah now the Maxwells are obviously back in the news with Ghislaine Maxwell and, and Ian and Kevin and this company La Hoog. and you've talked about a really difficult time in your life in our podcast mm. do you think about it differently now than you did before do you wish you did anything differently? I think about it quite a lot. Would we have done anything different? I think probably not. Um, we'd had no idea that he was basically dipping into the pension fund um, and taking that money to support his own companies, which is disgraceful, quite honestly. Um, Had we had the inkling of that, um, we would have, you know, intervened and stopped. We ended up helping him even the, even after Robert died. Yeah. Now know that Kevin appears to have been creating fake debt using LaHogue services so he didn't have to pay real creditors because he was trying to communicate to them that he was already being chased. He went on Channel 4 News and said there was no personal gain for him. He called himself innocent and disputed any dishonesty. Now we're innocent men and I'm very relieved to be going home, an innocent man tonight. How does that make you feel about the Maxwells now? If he, in all honesty, can stand up and say that, then, you know, he's got to live with his own conscience. Um, I find it incredibly difficult to believe that he did give us all the information. I think this LaHoog leak obviously throws Kevin's money claims into question, right? It does cast a doubt on Robert Maxwell's financial status as well. What do you think? I mentioned the uh, what we refer to as the ultra-private, which was the family side of things in Liechtenstein and elsewhere, of which we didn't know anything. But clearly, there was a well-trodden path of, should we say, hiding information, for want of a better word, whether that was assets or... You know, there were a lot of companies, and some people have gone into great depth to find out all the companies, that are, how they were all linked and so forth. When you have a situation like that, um, you don't create that for fun. You create it for a reason. Now, the main reason 
one assumes would be to avoid, not necessarily evade, but avoid paying tax. And many people do that. Um, I feel that this was more than that, but that's my feeling. I, don't, I can't be sure. As people dig through this document leak on Lahoog, more and more names are coming into light. Don't you think it just shows that the Maxwells were doing just what every other wealthy Lahoog client was doing? You may not like the systems that create that or enable that, but that's life. I mean, and it happens, and rich people who have the will, the wherefore, and the knowledge and the expertise of their lawyers to do that will do that. What are the chances that we'll see Robert Maxwell's name show up in the Lahoog leak? <laughs> Put it this way, I would not be at all surprised. <laughs> if you've enjoyed the season of Power, and I guess you have if you're still listening, then I'm super excited to tell you that season two is coming on November 1st. It's looking at a very different kind of power from Robert Maxwell's. It's all about Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy magazine. This little guy in a silk robe somehow bent the world around his fantasies. And his power still shapes our sexual attitudes today. In this series, journalist Amy Rose Spiegel is grappling with his complicated legacy. She tells Hefner's story through the women who made Playboy. And take it from me, you're going to want to hear what these incredible ladies have to say. The full trailer is on the Power feed now, so have a listen and get ready for season two of Power, Hugh Hefner and the Rise and Fall of Playboy. It was the 90s. I was eight years old, and I was visiting Manhattan's Little Italy with my parents. On Mulberry Street, then and now, are all these little souvenir shops. Among the Statue of Liberty paperweights and I Heart NYC baseball caps, one thing jumped out at me. Marilyn Monroe's picture was everywhere. Even decades after her death, her blonde hair, parted red lips, and half-open eyes were an easy sell. I begged my parents to buy me a cheap coin purse with her face on it. Throughout her short life, Marilyn was a magnet for powerful people. They adored being close to her, and that didn't change after she passed away. Her body rests in a huge above-ground mausoleum in L.A. It's home to quite a few celebrities from bygone eras. Dean Martin, Minnie Riperton, Truman Capote. Marilyn's grave, number 24, is marked by a little plaque that says, Marilyn Monroe, 1926 to 1962, and nothing more. And there, right next to her, comes another famous name. Hugh Marston Hefner, president of Playboy Clubs International, publisher of Playboy magazine, a millionaire and a bachelor. Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy magazine. Although he's buried beside Marilyn, they didn't know each other. Actually, they never even met. Do you think you would have dated her? I would have loved to have. You know I'm a sucker for blondes, <laughs> and she is the ultimate blonde. Years before he died, 
Hefner paid $75,000 to reserve a grave next to hers. He obviously hoped that some of Marilyn's glamour would reflect on him, even after they were gone. And this wasn't the first time Hefner had used her body to further his celebrity. Back in 1953, Hefner bought some nude pictures of Marilyn, taken before she was famous. Without her permission, he used those pictures to launch the very first issue of his magazine. He splashed her across the cover and printed her topless photos inside. And an empire was born. That's it for this episode of Power the Maxwells. If you enjoyed the story, please leave a review and share this show with your friends. Power the Maxwells is written and presented by me, Tara Palmieri. The producer for the show is Mira Kumar. Our visual designers are Emma Lansdowne and Alex Elder. Special thanks to Julia Doyle, Lizzie Jacobs, Josh Gibbs, Tom Koenig, Grant Irving, and Steve Ackerman. <laughs>